0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Smithflix Experience uh, as we continue our journey through the wonderful world of James Bond. So we're in the 70s now, and it's time for Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds are forever, they are all I need to please me, they can't stimulate to tease me, they won't leave in the night, I've no fear that they might deserve me. So this is the fourth novel that Ian Fleming wrote about Bond, but the seventh film uh, overall. Uh, so, yes, we're in the 70s with 007, uh, and George Lazenby has bugged down. He refused to fulfill his contract. The producers were stuck in a rut. Who would now play Bond? Producers did meet with and considered letting an American tackle the role concerning such renowned actors like Clint Eastwood, Adam West, Burt Reynolds, Robert Wagner, uh, Brett Halsey, and John Gavin, but they declined. Uh, they also considered British singer Malcolm Roberts and British explorer Ranulph Fiennes, uh, who is actually the third cousin to actors and brothers Joseph Fiennes and future Bond alum Ralph Fiennes, uh, but they also declined as well. In fact, uh, Eastwood, Reynolds, and West firmly stated that Bond should not be played by an American. A British actor Michael Gambon, most famously known to Harry Potter fans for playing Dumbledore in six of the Harry Potter films, was offered it, but he rejected it, stating he was in terrible shape. Uh, producers Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman then were approached by Ro- approached Roger Moore, uh, who they originally considered to do Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but he had to decline because he did an extra season of The Saint. When they approached him this time, he also had to decline because he had begun shooting a TV show called The Persuaders with Tony Curtis. So UA made it very clear they want Sean Connery back. When the producers approached Connery to return, he demanded a fee of $1.25 million. UA, of course, graciously accepted. Uh, this actually set a record with Connery, as he became the highest paid actor at that time. To sweeten the deal, UA did offer to finance two back-to-back films of Connery's choice. Both sides were agreed, and the rest is history. Uh, the producers also brought back director Guy Hamilton to help this bond out, and they wanted it to be more like how Goldfinger was. They, also brought back singer Shirley Bassey to form the theme song. This actually marks the second time that Hamilton has directed the Bond film, so, and it won't be his last. All right, so this marks Sean Connery's sixth outing as James Bond, and he would ultimately be his final officially, although he would go on to star in the 1983 non- Eon and UA production of Never Say Never Again. Now, as was earlier mentioned, uh, especially in the last episode, George Lazenby originally signed a seven-picture deal, but backed out at the insistence of his manager, Ronan O’Rahilly, who stated that Bond would be irrelevant in the 70s. Now, Connery used his legendary fee to establish the Scottish International Education Trust, where Scottish artists could apply for funding without having to leave their country to pursue their careers. So, bravo, Connery. Now for the role of Ernst Stavro Blofeld, the producers chose Charles Gray, who in a moment of seeing double, previously played Bond contact Deco Henderson and He Only Lived Twice. Gray chose to play Blofeld as a bit more flamboyant than the previous more sinister and serious attempts. Now for the role of assassin Mr. Kidd, Harry Saltzman cast jazz musician Putter Smith after seeing him in a Thelonious Monk band show. For the uh, role of assassin and Mr. Kidd's partner in crime, Mr. Wint, the producers originally cast musician Paul Williams, who's probably best known in the movie world for playing Little Enos Burdette in the Smokey and the Bandit films. However, he couldn't agree with the producers on compensation, so he was replaced by Bruce Glover. Glover is most recognized for some supporting roles, such as playing Duffy in the 1974 noir mystery classic Chinatown, starring Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway and Deputy Grady Coker in the original Walking Tall films. Uh, Glover is also the father of actor Crispin Glover, who is best known for playing George McFly in Back to the Future. Uh, Glover was surprised that he got the part, as producers originally felt he was too normal, and that they wanted a more deformed Peter Laurie type actor. And actually, I think that's, like, perfect casting right there. Glover just does it fantastically. Uh... For the role of Bert Saxby, an employee of Willard White, who's like the casino manager who's really working for Blofeld, uh, the producers cast legendary actor Bruce Cabot. Uh, Cabot is pro- probably best known for playing Jack Driscoll in the 1933 classic King Kong, as well as the 1936 Fritz Lang crime film Fury, and the 1939 western Dodge City. He's also known as one of the Wayne regulars, appearing in several uh, John Wayne films, including The Comancheros, Atari, McClintock, In Harm's Way, The Green Berets, Chisholm, and Big Jake. Uh, this actually wound up being Cabot's final row as he had passed away the following year. Now for the role of eccentric billionaire Willard White, the producers cast Jimmy Dean. And yes, that is the same Jimmy Dean who is the creator of the sausage brand, along with all those yummy breakfast platters you see in the frozen aisle. Uh, Jimmy was actually a prolific national TV personality in the 50s and 60s. He rose to fame in 1961 with the song Big Bad John, which was a crossover of country and rock and roll, which nabbed him a Grammy for Best Country and Western Song. He also had a hit show called The Jimmy Dean Show that ran from 1963 to 1975. That show is what gave puppeteer Jim Henson his first national exposure with his character Ralph, who would later go on to become one of the Muppets. Uh, Jimmy also started several TV commercials promoting his sausage, which he formed with his brother in 1969. His acting career, aside from his supporting role here, never climbed past starring in TV movies and guest spots on TV shows. He was actually cast as Willard White after Saltzman saw a presentation of him. Uh, Jimmy was actually worried about playing an imitation of Howard Hughes, as he was at one point an employee of Hughes's at the Desert Inn. For the role of Bond woman Tiffany Case, the producers cast Jill St. John at the recommendation of infamous lawyer and fixer to the Chicago mob, Sidney Korshak. Uh, Jill was originally cast as Plenty O'Toole, but uh, welcomed the larger role, and she actually became the first American Bondwoman. Uh, St. John made her film debut in 1949 at age 9, starring in the first full-length TV movie, an adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Uh, other notable films' roles include playing the daughter of Clifton Webb in the 1959 comedy The Remarkable Penny Packer, and the 1959 comedy Holiday for Lovers, as well as the 1960 adventure film The Lost World. Uh, she also played opposite Jerry Lewis in one of my favorite Jerry Lewis uh, comedies, the 1963 film Who's Minding the Store? Uh, she did also star opposite Dean Martin in the 1963 comedy Who's Been Sleeping in My Bed? Now, actress Alinda Thorson, uh, best known for her role in the Avengers TV series, met with Cubby to play Tiffany, but he never even considered her. Now, for the brief role of Bondwoman Plenty O'Toole, as mentioned earlier just a moment ago, it was originally given to Jill St. John. After they promoted her to the female lead role, they wound up casting actress Alana Wood. Wood made her film debut in the 1956 John Wayne classic western, The Searchers, which also starred her sister, Natalie Wood. Uh, Wood did appear in many movies and TV shows, but A-list fam- fame did elude her. Oh, and you may, may not recognize the face, but you may recognize the voice if you're a King and Bond fan. The, the person who played the doctor, the dentist, uh, in the movie was played by David DeKaiser, who actually dubbed Draco's voice in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And, of course, as usual, Bernard Lee, Lois Maxwell, and Desmond Llewellyn reprised their roles as M, Moneypenny, and Q. So, actually, this marked the first film to be primarily set in the U.S. and not the U.K. or Europe. Uh, This was a condition set by Hamilton, who had difficulties with the trade unions during the filming of his war epic, Battle of Britain. Filming locations did include LAX in Los Angeles, California, as well as Las Vegas, Nevada. Filming was also conducted at Universal City Studios in Hollywood and Pinewood Studios in London. Now, the desert outside Las Vegas was the stand-in for the desert scenes in South Africa, and the climactic oil rig sequence was shot offshore near Oceanside, California. Uh, other filming locations included Dan Tibies, France, uh, Amsterdam, and the Frankfurt Airport in Germany. So now let's take a look at the plot. We open in a Japanese house. Without warning, a man gets tossed through the paper wall, and we see a man in a suit kicking the crap out of him. Now we recognize Sean Connery's voice, but they keep his face hidden. Where is he? He demands. I shan't ask you politely next time. Tosses the guy through another paper wall, picks him and throws him up against the wall, choking him with his arm. He asks where Blofeld is, and he manages to choke out kai kai kairo So we then see an Egyptian man playing blackjack at a casino in Cairo. The man says, hit me, and we see a hand spin him around in the chair and slug him in the face. Well, he did say to hit him, so. The man slumps on a roulette wheel, and we hear Bond telling him that he has one chance as he chokes him. The man chokes out, ask Marie. Then we then see a beautiful woman lounging outside a pool, where we finally see Connery's face. She asks who he is, and he Saunters up to her with that famous swagger and replies the famous line, Bond, James Bond. She asks if there's something she can do for him. He says there is something that he wanted to get off her chest before he rips off the top of her bikini and starts to strangle her with it. Bond certainly seems to have a new fondness for strangling people. So then we cut to a man Talking about making masks or full reconstruction or something like that. Uh, a man walks in wearing a green, Na- green Nehru jacket. The scientist refers to him as Blofeld. So here is Blofeld. Blofeld demands the procedure take place tonight, but the scientist attempts to refute, but it's no use. We then see a man being lowered into a mud bath. The scientist leaves and Bond enters wearing an all-black stealth suit. He looks around. The man in the tub opens his eyes. We see him slowly lift a gun he has in the mud. Bond spots him, does a forward roll, and pulls on a chain that opens the bin that's holding the mud. It comes pouring out, looking like a giant diarrhea, and the man <laughs> runs in the mud. It's just popping down and everything. It's kind of gross if it wasn't actually mud. So Bond reaches in there and grabs a water gun, spraying off the face. It's not Blowfeld, but some rando. Then he hears a voice saying, Making mud pies, 007. Bond whirls around. There's Blofeld standing there. Blofeld laments that the man would have become him had he given him enough time and says it's a pity because he wanted to see how the operation would come out. Two guards enter, and Blofeld instructs him to get his gun. Bond goes to reach for in his jacket, but the guard tells him to stop and reaches for it himself, where his hand is met with some sort of sharp metal trap. Nice booby trap. Bond then picks up some scalpels and throws them at the other guard, killing him. Blofeld grabs a knife, lunges across a gurney at Bond, but Bond grabs him and drops a big surgical lamp on him. He then straps him to the gurney, spins it around, and pushes it toward a pool of what appears to be molten metal. Blofeld slowly sinks in and dies. Welcome to hell, Blofeld, Bond says. Then we see Blofeld's cat meowing before the camera zooms in on its diamond collar, which we then transition to... The opening credits, once again, wonderfully done by Maurice Binder. Shirley Bassey does return for the second time, singing the title song. I don't think it's quite as good as the Goldfinger theme song, but it's still pretty good and it's uh, pretty memorable. Uh, The credits show these various models intercut with stunning diamonds sparkling and shine. It's really quite beautiful. You know, it reminds you of one of those uh, those uh, low-budget diamond exchange commercials. You know, where they just they really shine the light to get the brightness and the the, uh, the sparkly personality of the diamond out. So. Uh, we then cut to M giving a somewhat boring lecture on diamonds to Bond as he observes one in a case. Bond looks uninterested and M asks if he's paying attention to which Bond repeats what M said. Bond questions bringing an MI6 on what he calls a simple smugly matter. M says that Sir Donald has convinced the Prime Minister otherwise. He also reminds Bond that now that Blofeld is dead, he hopes he can expect some solid work from him. M. then introduces Bond to Sir Donald, who offers them sherry. Uh, Bond accepts and compliments him on it, saying he believes it's a 51. M. corrects him and says there is no year for sherry. Bond says he's referring to the original vintage. What did I say about being a know-it-all 007? No one likes a know-it-all. 1851, he adds. Sir Donald congratulates him on his knowledge and asks him what he knows about diamonds. Bond mentions that they're the toughest substance known to man. He can cut glass suggest marriage and perhaps have it replaced the dog as women's best friend I'm glad to hear there's one subject you're not an expert on M quips. sir Donald then delves into the little problem he explains that one of the uh, biggest diamond mines is in Africa in a fascinating and often funny scene we actually see the process going on as he talks we cut to an African mining facility where we see men digging in a mine he says that the men work under airtight security as we see a guy finding an uncut diamond and hiding it in his sock. Uh, another finds one and tucks it into his mouth. Sir Donald continues saying the company prides itself on the loyalty of the workers. And that's where the humor mostly lies, is the, the you know, the he's saying one thing and the and the visual we're getting is showing quite a different one. So we then see them at the company dentist where the dentist pulls out the diamond from the worker's mouth. He studies it and goes up to place it in a hidden box before he wraps a wad of cash in some paper and hands it to the man. Another worker enters, smiling a mouthful of pearly white indicating He's been coming here for quite a while. We then hear two men talking about a scorpion. They pick it up as the motorcycle arrives. It's the dentist. They ask if he's Dr. Tynan, and he asks who they are and where Joe is. They say Joe couldn't make it, and introduce themselves as Mr. Kid and Mr. Wint. Dr. Tynan gets down to business by opening a hidden compartment in the muffler and pulling out the diamonds wrapped in cloth. Places in a toolbox that Wint has on him when Kid starts groaning. Wint mentions that he has a toothache, and Kid says it's his wisdom teeth. They ask if he can look at them, and Dr. Tynan complies. As he's looking in Kid's mouth, Wint drops the scorpion down the dentist's shirt. He recoils in horror as he's stung. And is dead. Now, it's actually, in the original script, he was. they were supposed to force the scorpion into his mouth, but they actually changed it to where he just gets stung in the back uh, to avoid uh, dealing with the, the British censors. Curious how everyone who touches those diamonds seems to die, Went quips. A helicopter then arrives, and the man were, asks where the doctor is. They tell him that he couldn't make it as he was bitten by the bug. They hand the man the box, and the helicopter takes off a short distance away the helicopter explodes kid says if god had wanted man to fly he would have given him wings mr kid winch says finishing the sentence kid then picks up the real box and they walk away holding hands now in the book they were actually classified as homosexual uh, it's never fully mentioned here but it is heavily implied that we see them holding hands they you know kind of look at each other a little bit differently it's kind of nice it's it's really interesting to see them you know taking these type of steps especially at this uh this you know time in uh you know in cinema history when you don't actually see this sort of thing so back at sir donald's uh he does mention that the security system isn't perfect and they've always accepted a small percentage of smuggling he adds that over the past two years the percentage has increased alarmingly he adds that it's more alarming that none of the stones have reached the market m says that sir donald believes someone is stockpiling them Sir Donald says they're worried about uh, that someone is planning to dump the stones on the market to drive the prices or make you agree to perpetual blackmail, Bond adds, to which Sir Donald agrees. Sir Donald says they want to know who is stockpiling them. We then cut to an elderly English woman teaching some kids the alphabet. A helper arrives and says there are two men to see her. She enters her house and are warmly greeted by kid and wind. They refer to her as Mrs. Whistler. (laughs) She does look like the Whistler's mother from the painting. She asks them where she's off to this time, and they reply, Amsterdam. She finds that lovely and goes to get a book. She mentions she'll have to take pictures of the canals for the children. They take out the bag of diamonds, she opens the book, and they place it in a cutout section inside. Thus, endeth the lesson for the day, she says, as she closes the book. Back at Sir Donald's and mentions that recent murders have made things more complicated. Vaughn says he's always fancied a trip to South Africa, but Anne informs him he's going to Holland. He mentions they've been keeping tabs on a smuggler named Peter Franks, and he's due to arrive there. Bond asks who his contacts are. So we then see a man pulling up to a border check station in a 1970 Triumph stag. The guard addresses him as Peter Franks and says there's a message for him and directs him where he can retrieve it. He heads inside, but never comes out. Instead said Moneypenny comes out wearing a female military uniform. So did Moneypenny not come out? Oh, way to go, Moneypenny. She approaches Mr. Frank's car, upon which Bond is already sitting in. It. She refers to him as Mr. Frank's and tells him his passport is in order, with a smile. Bond comments that anyone seeing her in that outfit would be discouraged from leaving the country. He asks what he can bring back for her, and she replies, a diamond in a ring. Bond looks at her and asks if she would settle for a tulip before taking off. Yes, she says, even though he can't hear her as so he drove off already. We see a massive hovercraft operating as a ferry, as we also see a lady giving a terrible talk about the Skinny Bridge to a group of tourists. She talks about houses designed by Rembrandt before stopping with a gasp. The tourists look on as a body is fished out of the water. It's Mrs. Whistler. Wint and kids stand atop one of the bridges as Kid snaps photos, stating that Mrs. Whistler did want pictures of the canals for the children, to which Wint replies that he's so kind and that the children will be thrilled. They walk away as Bond pulls up to a flat. He pushes the button marked T case and a woman answers. He introduces himself as Peter Franks and she invites him up. Once inside, he sees a blonde-haired woman duck into the bedroom. Once she'll be she says she'll be right out and that he can get a drink so Bond pours one. He asks if Mr. Case is home and she says there is none and that the T stands for Tiffany. Bond questions the name and she explains she was born in a Tiffany's while her mom was shopping for a wedding ring. Bond says, For your sake, good thing it wasn't Van Cleef and Opel's. Tiffany walks out, this time with curly brown hair and wearing nothing but lingerie. Bond asks if she was a blonde before and they have playful banter. She asks if he prefers blondes or brunettes and he replies, If the collars and the cuffs smash. Jeez, Bond. Easy where you're going there. She takes his drinks and says she'll get some ice. She leaves and goes back into the bedroom. There, she sprays something on the glass and dusts it for a fingerprint. When she reveals the thumbprint, she places it in front of a camera and snaps a picture of it. She then wipes off the print, puts some ice in the glass, and comes back, putting a negligee on. On uh, compliments her on wearing a nice little number, and she retorts that she doesn't dress for the hired help. So, I guess it makes more sense to just prance around half-naked. So, she asks for his passport, which he gives to her. She looks it over and scoffs at his profession, which he says which says he is an occupation transport consultant. She sarcastically calls it cute before handing it back to him. She says she's going to finish dressing, to which Bond says, oh, please, not on my account. She heads back into her room and looks at the photograph of the fingerprint. She feeds it into an analyzer and pulls up a photo of the fingerprint belonging to the real Peter Franks. She compares them side by side. They match. Back in the living room, Bond takes a drink and smells something odd. He sniffs the glass and holds it up to the light, aware that she's used something on it. He smiles and turns as Tiffany re-enters. She's now wearing a black dress and a red wig. Vaughn quips about how much he doesn't like redheads as they have terrible tempers, yet it somehow seems to suit her He adds. Vaughn invites her to a restaurant, but she cuts him off and says that she never makes his business with pleasure. Neither do I, Vaughn says. She says that's good and that he can stop with the cute remarks till after he gets the diamonds into Los Angeles. Vaughn asks where they are and she says that's not his problem, only to get them in. She adds that they're 50,000 carats. Bond does quick calculation remarks that that's 142 carats per ounce, and that will be too easy to smuggle. Tiffany Carr is saying that's why he's being paid $50,000. And what did you think you were going to be, a pair of earrings? She also tells him to come up with something original. The role of Assassin and Mr. Kidd's partner in crime, Mr. Wind, the producers originally cast musician Paul Williams, who's probably best known in the movie world for playing Little Enos Burdett in the Smokey and the Bandit films. However, he couldn't agree with the producers on compensation, so he was replaced by Bruce Glover. Glover is most recognized for some supporting roles, such as playing Duffy in the 1974 noir mystery classic Chinatown starring Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. And deputy Grady Coker in the original Walking Tall films. Glover is also the father of actor Crispin Glover who is best known for playing George McFly in Back to the Future. Glover was surprised that he got the part as producers originally felt he was too normal and that they wanted a more deformed Peter Lorre type actor. And actually I think that's like perfect casting right there. Glover just does it fantastically. For the role of Burt Saxby, an employee of Willard White, who's like the casino manager who's really working for Blofeld, uh, the producers cast legendary actor Bruce Cabot. Uh, Cabot is prob- probably best known for playing Jack Driscoll in the 1933 classic King Kong, as well as the 1936 Fritz Lang crime film Fury and the 1939 western Dodge City. He's also known as one of the Wayne regulars appearing in several uh, John Wayne films, including The Coleman Atari, McClintock, In Harm's Way, The Green Berets, Chisholm, and Big Jake. Uh, This actually wound up being Cabot's final row as he had passed away the following year. Now, for the role of eccentric billionaire Willard White, the producers cast Jimmy Dean. And yes, that is the same Jimmy Dean who is the creator of the sausage brand along with all those yummy breakfast splatters you see at the Frozen Isle. Jimmy was actually a prolific national TV personality in the 50s and 60s. He rose to fame in 1961 with the song Big Bad John, which was a crossover of country and rock and roll, which nabbed him a Grammy for Best Country and Western Song. He also had a hit show called The Jimmy Dean Show that ran from 1963 to 1975. That show is what gave puppeteer Jim Henson his first national exposure with his character Ralph, who would later go on to become one of the Muppets. Jimmy also started several TV commercials promoting his sausage, which he formed with his brother in 1969. His acting career, aside from his supporting role here, never climbed past starring in TV movies and guest spots on TV shows. He was actually cast as Willard White after Saltzman saw a presentation of him. Jimmy was actually worried about playing an imitation of Howard Hughes as he was at one point an employee of Hughes' at the Desert Inn. For the role of Bondwoman Tiffany Case, the producers cast Jill St. John at the recommendation of infamous lawyer and fixer to the Chicago Mob, Sidney Korshak. Jill was originally cast as Plenty O'Toole, but uh, welcomed the larger role and she actually became the first American Bondwoman. St. John made her film debut in 1949 at age nine, starring in the first full-length TV movie and adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Uh, other notable films roles include playing the daughter of Clifton Webb in the 1959 comedy The Remarkable Penny Pennypacker and the 1959 comedy Holiday for Lovers, as well as the 1960 adventure film The Lost World. Uh, she also played opposite Jerry Lewis in one of my favorite Jerry Lewis uh, comedies, the 1963 film, Who's Minding the Store? Uh, She did also star opposite Dean Martin in the 1963 comedy, Who's Been Sleeping in My Bed? Now, actress Alinda Thorson, best known for her role in the Avengers TV series, met with Cubby to play Tiffany, but he never even considered her. Now, for the brief role of Bondwoman Plenty O'Toole, as mentioned earlier just a moment ago, it was originally given to Jill St. John. After they promoted her to the female lead role, they wound up casting actress Lana Wood. Wood made her film debut in the 1956 John Wayne classic western The Searchers, which also starred her sister Natalie Wood. Wood did appear in many movies and TV shows, but A-list fame did elude her. Oh, and you may may not recognize the face, but you may recognize the voice if you're a King & Bond fan. The, The person who played the doctor, dentist uh, in the movie was played by David De Kaiser, who actually dubbed Draco's voice in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Of course, as usual, Bernard Lee, Lois Maxwell, and Desmond Llewellyn reprised their roles as M, Moneypenny, and Q. So actually, this marked the first film to be primarily set in the U.S. and not the U.K. or Europe. Uh, This was a condition set by Hamilton, who had difficulties with the trade unions during the filming of his war epic, Battle of Britain. Filming locations did include LAX in Los Angeles, California, as well as Las Vegas, Nevada. Filming was also conducted at Universal City Studios in Hollywood and Pinewood Studios in London. Now, the desert outside Las Vegas was the stand-in for the desert scenes in South Africa. And the climactic oil rig sequence was shot offshore near Oceanside, California. Uh, Other filming locations included Antibes, France, uh, Amsterdam, and the Frankfurt Airport in Germany. So now let's take a look at the plot. We open in a Japanese house. Without warning, a man gets tossed through the paper wall, and we see a man in a tan suit, kicking the crap out of him. Now we recognize Sean Connery's voice, but they keep his face in. Where is he? He demands. I shan't ask you politely next time. He tosses the guy through another paper wall, picks him and throws him up against the wall, choking him with his arm. He asks where Blofeld is, and he manages to choke out Ka-Kai-Kairo! So we then see an Egyptian man playing blackjack at a casino in Cairo. The man says, hit me. We see a hand spin him around in the chair and slug him in the face. Well, he did say to hit him. So. The man slumps on a roulette wheel and we hear Bond telling him that he has one chance as he chokes him. The man chokes out, ask Marie. And we then see a beautiful woman lounging outside a pool where we finally see Connery's face. She asks who he is and he Saunters up to it with that famous swagger and replies "The famous line, Bond, James Bond. She asks if there's something she can do for him. He says there is something that he wanted to get off her chest before he rips off the top of her bikini and starts to strangle her with it. Bond certainly seems to have a new fondness for strangling people. So, so then we cut to a man talking about making masks or full reconstruction or something. A man walks in wearing a green Nehru na- jacket. The scientist refers to him as Blofeld. So here is Blofeld. Blofeld demands the procedure take place tonight, but the scientist attempts to refute, but it's no use. We then see a man being lowered into a mud bath. The scientist leaves, and Bond enters wearing an all black stealth suit. He looks around. The man in the tub opens his eyes. We see him slowly lift a gun he has in the mud. Bond spots him, does a forward roll, and pulls on a chain that opens the bin that's holding the mud. It comes pouring out, looking like a giant diarrhea, in the man trunks <laughs> in the mud. It's just up and down and everything. It's kind of gross if it wasn't actually mud. So Bond reaches in there and grabs a water gun, spraying off the face. It's not Blofeld, but some rando. Then he hears a voice saying, Making mud pies, 007. Bond whirls around. There's Blofeld standing there. Blofeld laments that the man would have become him had he given him enough time and says it's a pity because he wanted to see how the operation would come out. Two guards enter and Blofeld instructs him to get his gun. Bond goes to reach for it in his jacket, but the guard tells him to stop and reaches for it himself where his hand is met with some sort of sharp metal trap. Nice booby trap. Bond then picks up some scalpels and throws them at the other guard, killing him. Blofeld grabs a knife, lunges across the gurney and Bond, but Bond grabs him and drops a big surgical lamp on him, then straps him to the gurney, spins it around, and pushes it toward a pool of what appears to be molten metal. Blofeld slowly sinks in and dies. Welcome to hell, Blofeld, Look, Bond says. Then we see Blofeld's cat meowing before the camera zooms in on its diamond collar. Should we then transition to the opening credits? Once again, wonderfully done by Maurice Binder, Shirley Bassey does return for the second time singing the title song. I don't think it's quite as good as the Goldfinger theme song, but it's still pretty good and it's uh, pretty memorable. Uh, the credits show these various models intercut with stunning diamonds sparkling and shining. It's really quite beautiful. Reminds me of one of those uh, those uh, low-budget uh, diamond exchange commercials, you know, where they just they really shine the light to get the brightness and the the sparkling personality of the diamond dance. We then cut to M, giving a somewhat boring lecture on diamonds to Bond as he observes one in a case. Bond looks uninterested, and M asks if he's paying attention, to which Bond repeats what M said. Bond questions, bringing in MI6, and what he calls a simple smuggling matter. M says that Sir Donald has convinced the Prime Minister otherwise. He also reminds Bond that now that Blofeld is dead, he hopes he can expect some solid work from him. M. then introduces Bond to Sir Donald, who offers them sherry. Bond accepts and compliments him on it, saying he believes it's a 51. M. corrects him and says there is no year for sherry. Bond says he's referring to the original vintage. What did I say about being a know-it-all 007? No one likes a it 1851, he adds. Sir Donald congratulates him on his knowledge and asks him what he knows about diamonds. Bond mentions that they're the toughest substance known to man cut glass, suggest marriage and perhaps have it replace the dog as women's best friend. I'm glad to hear there's one subject you're not an expert on. M quips. Sir Donald then delves into the little problem. He explains that one of the uh, biggest diamond mines is in Africa. In a fascinating and often funny scene, we actually see the process going on as he talks. We Cut to an African mining facility where we see men digging in a mine. He says that the men work under airtight security as we see a guy finding an uncut diamond and hiding it in his side. Uh, another finds one and tucks it into his mouth. Sir Donald continues saying the company prides itself on the loyalty of the workers. That's where the humor mostly lies. Is the, you know, the, he's saying one thing and the, and the visual we're getting is showing quite a different one. So we then see them at the company dentist, where the dentist pulls out the diamond from the worker's mouth. He studies it, and goes up to place it in a hidden box before he wraps a lot of cash in some paper and hands it to the man. Another worker enters, smiling a mouthful of pearly whites indicating he's been coming here for quite a while. We then hear two men talking about a scorpion. They pick it up as the motorcycle arrives. That's the dentist. They ask if he's Dr. Tynan, and he asks who they are and where Joe is. They say Joe couldn't make it, and introduce themselves as Mr. Kidd, and Mr. Wint. Dr. Tynan gets down to business by opening a hidden compartment in the muffler and pulling out the diamonds wrapped in cloth. Places it in a toolbox that Wint has on him when Kid starts groaning. Wint mentions that he has a toothache. Kid says it's his wisdom teeth. They ask if he can look at them, and Dr. Tynan complies. As he's looking in Kid's mouth, Wint drops the scorpion down the dentist's shirt. He recoils in horror as he's stung and is dead. Now, it's actually in the original script, he was, they were supposed to force the scorpion into his mouth, but they actually changed it. It's where he just gets stung in the back uh, to avoid uh, dealing with the, the British censors. Curious how everyone who touches those diamonds seems to die, when quips. A helicopter then arrives, and the man were, asks where the doctor is. They tell him that he couldn't make it, as he was bitten by the bug. They hand the man the box, and the helicopter takes off. Short distance away, the helicopter explodes. Kid says, If God had wanted man to fly, you would have given him wings, Mr. Kid, Winch says, finishing the sentence. Kid then picks up the real box and they walk away holding hands. Now, in the book, they were actually classified as homosexual. It's never fully mentioned here, but it is heavily implied. There we see them holding hands. They you know, kind of look at each other a little bit differently. It's kind of nice. It's, it's really interesting to see them taken these type of steps, especially in this uh, this you know, time in, uh, you know, in cinema history, when you don't actually see this sort of thing. So back at Sir Donald's, uh, he does mention that the security system isn't perfect, and they've always accepted a small percentage of smuggling. He
1: adds that over the past
0: two years, the percentage has increased alarmingly. He adds that it's more alarming that none of the stones have reached the market. M says that Sir Donald believes someone is stockpiling them. Sir Donald says they're worried about uh, that someone is planning to dump the stones on the market to drive the prices or make you agree to perpetual blackmail, Vaughn adds to which Sir Donald agrees. Sir Donald says they want to know who is stockpiling them. We then cut to an elderly English woman teaching some kids the alphabet. A helper arrives and says there are two men to see her. She enters her house and are warmly greeted by Kid and Wint. They refer to her as Mrs. Whistler. She does look like the Whistler's mother from the painting. She asks them where she's off to this time, and they reply, Amsterdam, she finds that lovely and goes to get a book. She mentions she'll have to take pictures of the canals for the children. They take out the bag of diamonds, she opens the book, and they place it in a cutout section inside. Thus endeth the lesson for the day, she says, as she closes the book. Back at Sir Donald's Anne mentions that recent murders have made things more complicated. Vaughn says he's always fancied a trip to South Africa, but Anne informs him he's going to Holland. He mentions they've been keeping tabs on a smuggler named Peter Franks, and he's due to arrive there. Bond asks who his contacts are. So we then see a man pulling up to a border check station in a nineteen seventy triumph stag. Guard addresses him as Peter Franks and says there's a message for him and directs him where he can retrieve it. He heads inside but never comes out. He said Money Penny comes out where have a female military uniform. So then Moneypenny did Money Penny not come out? She approaches Mr. Frank's car, upon which Bond is already sitting in. She refers to him as Mr. Frank's and tells him his passport is in order with a smile. Bond comments that anyone seeing her in that outfit would be discouraged from leaving the country. He asks what he can bring back for her, and she replies, a diamond in a ring. Bond looks at her and asks if she would settle for a tulip, Yes, she says, even though he can't hear her as he drove off see a massive hovercraft operating as a ferry as we also see a lady giving a terrible talk about the skinny bridge to a group of tourists. She talks about houses designed by Rembrandt before stopping with a gasp. Tourists look on. As a body is fished out of the water, it's Mrs. Whistler. When and Kids stand atop one of the bridges as Kid snaps photos stating that Mrs. Whistler did want pictures of the canals for the children to which Wint replies that he's so kind the children will be thrilled walk away as Bond pulls up to a flat. He pushes the button marked in T-Case and a woman answers. He introduces himself as Peter Franks and she invites him up. Once inside he sees a blonde haired woman duck into the bedroom. Once she'll be she says she'll be right out and that he can get a drink so Bond pours one. He asks if Mr. Case is home and she says there is none that the T stands for Tiffany. Bon questions the name, and she explains she was born in a Tiffany's while her mom was shopping for a wedding ring. Bon says, for your sake, good thing it was in Van Cleef and Opels. Tiffany walks out, this time with curly brown hair and wearing nothing but lingerie. Bon asks if she was a blonde before, and they have playful banter. She asks if he prefers blondes or brunettes, and he replies, and if the collars and the cuffs smash. Jeez, Bon, easy where you're going. She takes his drinks and says she'll get some ice. She leaves and goes back into the bedroom. There, she sprays something on the glass and dusts it for a fingerprint. Once she reveals the thumbprint, she places it in front of a camera and snaps a picture of it. She so then wipes off the print, puts some ice in the glass, and comes back, putting a negligee on. Von compliments her on wearing a nice little number, and she retorts that she doesn't dress for the hired help. So I guess it makes more sense to just prance around half naked. So she asks for his passport, which he gives to her. She looks it over and scoffs at his profession, which he says, which says he is an occupation transport consultant. She sarcastically calls it cute before handing it back to him. She says she's going to finish dressing, to which Bond says, well, please not on my account. She heads back into her room and looks at the photograph of the fingerprint. She feeds it into an analyzer and pulls up a photo of the fingerprint belonging to the real Peter Franks. She compares them side by side. They match. Back in the living room, Bond takes a drink and smells something odd. He sniffs the glass and holds it up to the light, aware that she's used something on it. He smiles and turns as Tiffany re-enters. She's now wearing a black dress and a red wig. Vaughn quips about how much he doesn't like redheads as they have terrible tempers, yet it somehow seems to suit her hands. Vaughn invites her to a restaurant, but she cuts him off and says that she never makes his business with pleasure. Neither do I, Vaughn says. She says that's good and that he can stop with the cute remarks until after he gets the diamonds into Los Angeles. Vaughn asks where they are, and she says that's not his problem, only to get them in. She adds that they're 50,000 carats. Vaughn does quick calculation remarks that that's 142 carats per ounce, and that will be too easy to smuggle. Tiffany Carr is saying that's why he's being paid $50,000. And what did you think you were going to be, a pair of earrings? She also tells him to come up with something original. So back at the White House, uh, Blofeld answers the phone. The, the man on the line says it's Bert. So we then see it's act, not actually Bert, but rather Bond using a similar tool that Blofeld is using thanks to Q. Uh, Felix is also there. So again, how did Q get from London to Las Vegas so fast? You know, he, I mean, again, the, 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 was the Concorde exist at this point? Uh, you know, did, did they develop, uh, did the Q, uh, Q branch develop you know a transporter or something like that. We just don't know about it. When he's there, lickety split. So, so Bond, as Bert Saxby says that they have a problem. Blofeld asks if there's something wrong with his voice. He asks if he has a cold. Bond cups his hand over the receiver. As Q makes some adjustments on the machine, Bond speaks again, sounding more like Bert. He says that he saw James Bond in the casino. Blofeld says that that's impossible. Bond says he should come down and see for himself then. Bond then adds that if Bond is half the genius people say he is, we got a real problem. Blofeld tells him to calm down and and uh, Bond as Bert says that Bond is not working alone. He suggests they move Willard White. Blofeld says that's nonsense and that he's perfectly safe at his summer house. Felix whispers that it's on the ridge about 10 miles outside of town. Blofeld says he's surprised, as it's not like him to panic. Again, Bond as Bert says he just doesn't want to mess with anyone as tough as James Bond. Blofeld says not to worry about Mr. Bond, and he then instructs Bird to go to Mr. White's summer house as it feels that Mr. White has outlived his usefulness. He adds to do it cleanly. Bond complies and hangs up. He tells Q that that ridiculous contraption actually worked, and that Q has surpassed himself. Hugh says it was nothing, that he made one for the kids last Christmas. Felix instructs his man Maxwell to get ready to hit the penthouse as soon as they, ha- as soon as they have White. Maxwell complies. So at the White House, Blofeld calls and asks for Professor Metz. He instructs Metz that there's been a change of plans, so that the deadline is being moved up to 24 hours, and he will join them immediately. Bond and Felix arrive at the summer home. Bond requests five minutes to get up there and five minutes to find White. Takes off his jacket and heads inside the home. It appears to be empty. A woman turns around in a lounge chair and says hi. She gets up does a cartwheel, introducing herself as Bambi. Bond says, good evening. And I'm Thumper, another lady lying on a rock says. She asks if there's anything they can do for him. And Bond replies that he can think of several things offhand, but for the time being, he's looking for Mr. White. Thumper says that Willie is over there, pointing away and gestures for Bond to help her down. Bond asks if that's all there is to it, and Thumper says no, that first they're going to have a ball. She then kicks Bond in the stomach. Bond doubles over as Thumper scurries toward the door, telling Bambi it's her turn. Bond sends up as Bandy front flips towards Bond and kicks him in the chest, knocking him back. Thumper helps him up and pushes him toward Bambi, who flips him over her back. Thumper cartwheels over in front of Bond, telling Bambi she's on again. Bond then sees Bambi run and leap and he ducks, but she doesn't come down. He looks up and she's swinging from a trapeze bar. She sits atop it and calls for Thumper who comes up running up to Bond and tries to kick him. Bond counters her attack and knocks her to the ground, but it is kicked in the face by Bambi and Bond falls again. Seems the only people that can take out Bond is these two ladies. So Thumper pulls him up again and swings him to Bambi who wraps her legs around his neck. Thumper does this really bizarre move where she acts like she's gonna hit Bond, but instead she does the splits and does this like strange look back at him. And then she slides her ring, uh, her legs around and gets up and she's kind of staring at him the whole time with like a, a, a look of intent to kill in her eyes. So it's, I don't know what she's trying to do at that point. You yeah. know, fake him out or what. Bond tries to free himself from Bambi's grasp, but her thighs are too strong. Uh, Thumper slowly gets up and kicks him knocking him to the ground again. Both Bambi and Thumper surround Bond and slowly close in on him. Bond gets up and they both kick him into some really odd looking decor that can only be described I guess as giant paper towel tubes Uh, They (laughs) throw Bond into the pool and dive in after him. Bond reaches up and suddenly they seem to be, I don't know their weakness must be water because they're kicking ass at this point and then, and then Bond just suddenly gets up to him and pushes their head underwater and they're helpless. So he holds them underwater as they struggle to resurface. Felix and his men come rushing in. Felix says, Willard White is about to be executed and look who's giving breaststroke lessons. Felix asks where White is and Bond says he hasn't found out yet. He brings the ladies heads above water for some air and pushes them back under saying, still haven't found out. They finally free themselves and quickly swim to the side. Thupper frantically points down to a room below as she gasps for air. Bond gets out and he and Felix and everyone head down. They enter a room and are greeted by a tall, lanky man. He asks if they're FBI or CIA. Bond says no, British intelligence. Uh, Bond, did you forget that Felix's men who are CIA are with you? You're not alone here, pal. So Bond introduces himself and they shake hands. The man is Willard White. Mr. White chuckles when he notices that Bond is all wet. I see you met my friends Bambi and Thumper. Bond says yes, that they did have a chat. Mr. White gets serious and asks what's happened to him, what can we do about it? Bond says he'll explain everything on the way. As they head outside, shots ring out. Bond grabs Mr. White and they and Felix duck behind a stone wall. CIA agents start firing back, the man shooting is Bert Saxby. So wait a minute. If Blofeld told Bond who was pretending to be Saxby to kill White, and presumably Blofeld figured he was talking to the real Saxby, how did the real Bert Saxby wind up here? Did he just decide to bump off Mr. White himself, and the whole thing is a bizarre coincidence? You know, we never get any indication that Blofeld figured, that, okay, that's not really Bert. You know, his, you know, he there was some like minor you know uh, suggestions maybe there where he's like you're it's not like you to act like this sort of thing you know the characteristic was a tiny bit off but you know we don't get any indication where he you know says you know what i don't believe that was Bert or something like that you know so yeah so the real bert saxby showing up here just seems completely out of out of uh, left field so anyway one of the agents shoots saxby and kills him felix gives the word for his men to storm the penthouse <laughs> in a funny moment Bond realizes that Saxby after he dies and Mr. White goes, "Bert Saxby? Tell him he's fired. And Bond gives one of these slow head turn looks with eyes that read sarcasm. It's just, it's one of Connery's best moments. Probably in any film really. Uh, Back at the White House, hotel and casino we see several agents rush in. We then see Q playing the slots. He keeps winning but doesn't collect the wins, just moves on to the next slot machine. Uh, Tiffany rushes up to him, asking if he's had any luck, referring to him as Mr. Q. He says he's had a bit of luck. She then asks if he's heard anything from Bond or if he or Felix have been talking about her. Q says afraid not, and she asks if he can put in a good word to keep her out of the slammer now that she's working for the good guys. She sees Q win the jackpot again. Tiffany says, well, that's unbelievable. And Q shows her a ring. He says it's an electromagnetic RPM controller, and that he's been aching to give it a try. Ah yes, the EMRPMC. I've heard of those. Q then explains by putting pressure on the case when the desired symbols appear, which causes the cylinders inside the stutter. But he stops when he realizes that T- Tiffany has taken off. She isn't sorry. Sorry, Q. Uh, she's not interested in your scientific gibberish. Uh, next time, Q. So anyway, Tiffany rushes outside and hails a cab, but the cab takes off. She rushes up to a limo sitting nearby, and the driver shoves her in. She's greeted by Blofeld in drag. I have nothing against the drag community, but this is a little out of the blue. It's, I mean, I guess it's a pretty good disguise. when you want to make sure that no one knows you're still alive. But then again, how many people in Las Vegas know who Blofeld is? Honestly, you know, it could be a, a, a disguise because of the... You know, I guess there is CIA watching. I mean, that's the only logical explanation I can come up as to why he would choose to dress like a woman. Or maybe he likes it this way. Hey, I don't judge. You know, you do you, Blofeld. So Blofeld says, well, 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 look what the cat drug in. He says he dreaded making the tedious journey alone. Bond and Felix enter the white compound where Bond was previously. They enter the room, but Bond says the satellite is gone. Tries to describe it, but Mr. White instructs him to draw it for him. Felix asks if Dr. Metz worked for him. Mr. White said no, but everybody in the business has heard of him, referring to him as the leading expert on laser refraction. He also calls Dr. Metz an idealist before wondering how Blofeld got his hooks in him. He asks who gave him clearance to work here, and a worker tells Mr. White that he did, stating that he spoke to him personally about it. The guy further adds he even recognized his voice. Mr. White then adds, I suppose I told you not to keep any copies of the microfilm records either. The man complies. Bond hands White a piece of paper with the drawing on it. White then shows the drawing to the employee, calling him Tom and asked him what to do, what he did with it. Tom says it was instructed to send it to Vandenberg. White shouts for Tom to get them on the phone. Over at Vandenberg Air Force Base, a man in the control room answers the phone. He gets excited when he tells his boss that Willard White is on the phone and wants to speak to him. His boss takes the phone and tells White it's an honor. Shove your honor, White says before asking where the satellite he sent down is. The man says it blasted off... The man says it blasted off 24 minutes ago and gushes that it was a perfect trajectory. One of the men at the control booth says something went wrong. Then it's experiencing premature first stage separation. Uh, so in space, we see the panels separate and the aerofoils extend out. Thanks, thankfully, they fixed the space mistake they made, and you only live twice, and they don't have this movement drag on forever. Uh, that was the big problem with you only live twice. It was just it like it moved slow, so slow. It was just it was tragic to watch. You just want to hit that fast-forward button on your DVD or Blu-ray player, watch it just to speed it up to a normal t- frame rate. So, uh, White shouts for them to abort, but they can't. The man at the control tower says that someone has overridden the controls. White hangs up and says that what... says... three, two, one. White hangs up and says to Bond that whatever's up there, his friend Blofeld is controlling it now. So, in, sa- in space, we see diamond panels slide around, forming a dish. Bond, White, and Felix try to figure out what Blofeld created back at uh, White's office. Bond says that a life supply of diamonds be manipulated by an expert in light refraction. White says that the first laser beam is generated through a diamond. That adds that if Metz deserves one-tenth of his reputation, then the power of that thing would be incredible. Uh, Vandenberg Mission Control tracks the satellite over North Dakota. mission leader instructs his men to alert Strategic Air Command. We then see the satellite as it emits an intense laser beam hitting a nuclear warhead as it sits in a missile silo. The missile explodes and we see a, a long shot of a mushroom cloud. So back at White's office, the phone rings and White answers it. He gets off and states said he was just informed that one of our nukes just accidentally blew up in North Dakota. Tells Bond that whatever's happening has started. We then see the satellite shoot a laser down onto a submarine underwater causing it to explode. Bond, White, Felix, and some other CIA spooks take the elevator to White's office. Uh, White is told by Maxwell that he has a phone call from Washington, so he takes it in the bathroom. Hey, when you gotta go, you gotta go. Maxwell tells Felix that they found some tunnels and are going to investigate. Bond asks where Tiffany is, but Felix seems to get upset and asks if they can find Blofeld first and instructs his men to go check out the tunnel first, and they leave. So we then see the satellite shoot another laser at a Chinese nuclear arsenal, which explodes. Now, there is an, an unintentionally funny moment here. We get some uh, green screen effects coupled with some bad acting of a soldier on fire and some fake flames and some like of that. Uh, the whole moment of, you know, Blofeld attacking these places is pretty intense because it's just, you know, uh, you know, it has, you know, somewhat, like, you know, close to real-life capabilities, you know, despite the, you know, the science fiction aspect of it. But uh, it's kind of broken up here because of this moment here, this bad actor who's, you know, his phony screaming and arms flaying and everything like that with the fake flames and everything that just kind of sours it a little bit, so. Uh, So, back at White's office, back at White's office, White gets off the phone and tells Bond that Blofeld is holding the entire country up for ransom and that they have until noon tomorrow to pay up. Oh, Blofeld, you old rascal. Up to your old shenanigans. White then adds that it's an international auction with nuclear supremacy going to the highest bidder. Bond asks what Blofeld would need to run that satellite. White says a simple set of tapes fed into a computer bank. Bond asks what size those tapes would have to be. White sits down on his couch and stretches out saying it could be in any size, from 6 inch to a cassette. Bond says that, assuming he's still using his empire as a cover, it could be anywhere from the u.s from alaska to florida from maine to oregon from texas to baja california baja white exclaims i don't have anything in baja they look down at the giant floor map under the floor of glass and see a model oil rig marked near baja california aboard an offshore oil rig blofeld is listening to news reports of his attacks dr metz is freaking out wondering what happens if they don't give in to the demands and the military attacks Blofeld tells him to calm down and said that the military service was to be expected. He refers to it as the great powers flexing their military muscles like so many impotent beach boys. That's right, Blofeld went there calling muscle bone men impotent. He knows no bounds. So he instructs Dr. Metz that they still have an hour to comply. A worker instructs Blofeld that a plane is approaching. He has the rig go to stage one alert and goes outside to see the plane a big inflatable ball falls out of the plane and parachutes deploy as it lands in the ocean the ball starts moving towards the rig men hoist it up and it unzips from inside bond pops his head out and says that he's with acme pollution inspection says that they're cleaning up the world and figured this would be a good place to start bond climbs out and boards a lift to the rig where he's greeted by blofeld blofeld expresses his disappointment figuring it at least be one head of state He then asks Bond if he's coming to negotiate, as his pitiful little island hasn't even been threatened yet. Blofeld instructs his men to search him thoroughly and then bring Bond to him. Inside the rig, Blofeld is listening to a marching band cassette. He turns it off, saying he hates martial music. He takes it out, and Blofeld says he's correct, that the marching band cassette box contains the master satellite control tape, and that he was hoping to switch it out with the original cassette. He apologizes to Bond for ruining the lining of his suit. At that moment Tiffany enters wearing a purple bikini because reasons. Bond wonders aloud what line Blofeld used on her. Blofeld, she's only threatening when she's threatened. Bond says that he's holding all the aces including the dragon lady, motioning to Tiffany. Blofeld says that he's flattered that Bond is jealous. Blofeld basically states that he's won and offers to show Bond around. Tiffany grabs the cassette off the desk and asks she can come with. She hands Bond the tape behind their backs. Blofeld says that she might want to put something on over the bikini, saying that he's come too far to have his crew distracted by a pretty body. They head down to the main control room, and Dr. Metz says that they haven't responded yet. Blofeld says they have 12 minutes left, and perhaps some gentle prodding is in order. He looks down at a large globe with his satellite attached a you know, models of the satellite emits a little light on where it's you know pointed at on the planet another funny moment he tells bond that at present his satellite is over kansas Lofeld then says well if i destroy kansas the world may not hear about it for years <sighs> sorry kansas <laughs> he then considers new york city with all that smog and traffic state and it would give them a fresh start he then says Washington D.C. Perfect. Since we have not heard from them, they will hear from us." Bond then approaches the computer bank and inquires about it. Blofeld says it needs a passcode. Bond says it looks simple enough as all he has to do is press a button. He pushes a button and the cassette ejects and lands on the ground. Bond's look is priceless like... He looks as if Blofeld as if to say, I honestly didn't know that was going to happen. So a goon rushes up with a gun for no apparent reason. Blofeld doesn't look amused and sternly instructs Bond to put it back immediately. Bond picks it up and uses some sleight of hand to switch the tapes. Tiffany enters wearing what appears to be a bikini with sleeves and this is less revealing. She then asks if Superman is giving him any trouble. Blofeld tells him to put it back and Bond inserts the marching band tape. Blofeld instructs his men to throw him in the brig. He approaches Tiffany, Calls her a bitch and sticks the master control tape down her bikini bottom. She gives a very surprised look. Yes, that's not obvious at all. No one noticed her eyes bulge and head thrust forward and all that. He says her problems are behind her now. Wink wink. Bond steps outside and stops to tie a shoe untying a balloon at the same time. A man runs up and tries to shoot the balloon down, but Bond shoves him out of the way. Tiffany comes right out as Bond takes out the goons and tells them she switched out the tapes. You stupid twit. You put the real one back in. Bond says to her, honestly, Bond, your pun didn't exactly deliver a clear message, so who's to blame? Sorry, Bond, this one's on you. You should have uh, held onto the tape yourself and, like, thrown it into the ocean or something. Goons grab Bond and he's escorted to the brig. Overhead, Willard White's helicopter flies by. Felix and White are aboard. They see the balloon and figure that that's the signal. Felix instructs them to attack. A huge shootout ensues as military choppers descend, shooting rockets. Dr. Metz pleads with Blofeld to get on the radio and surrender, but Blofeld refuses. Tiffany sneaks back into the control room and tries to replace the tape again. Blofeld spots the tape-shaped outline in her butt and says, Tiffany, you're showing a bit more cheek than usual. She sheepishly looks at him. He has her hand over the tape and has her taken away. He tells Dr. Metz she had nice cheeks too and that they too bad they weren't brains. So gunfire continues outside as the countdown commences. The goon walking with Tiffany gets shot and she takes off. Bond who is basically put below the rig, I guess that's the brig for them, makes his way back up. Inside Dr. Metz pleads with Blofeld to give up but Blofeld tells him that if he doesn't get back to his post he'll have him shot. Then Blofeld quietly gets on the horn and instructs to have his bathos sub prepared then sneaks out. Inside his bathosub, Blo- Blofeld instructs the crane to lift him and prepares to be lowered into the water. Bond rushes up and knocks out the crane operator. Blofeld gets upset that the operator isn't responding and shouts for him to be lowered. Bond hits the lever and the bathosub crashes in the water. Blofeld shouts, You idiot! You kind have killed me! He then instructs to be disengaged but Bond raises the bathosub. Now Blofeld is getting pissed. Tiffany rushes up to Bond as Bond slams the bathosub into a wall tells Tiffany to pick up the gun and she goes to hand it to him, but he tells her to shoot them, pointing at the men. She shrieks and fires, though the recoil sends the gun aiming upwards and she backs up like she's being vibrated off the platform and falls off the rig. Well, she's dead. Just kidding, she survives. Bond crashes the Batho sub into the control room and jumps out. The entire rig explodes as Bond dives into the water. We then see a cruise ship about to depart. Felix says he'll inform M that he's heading home. Bond says, don't tell him which direction. White says for him to give him the word and he'll have the captain do circles in the ocean. We also see that Wint and Kid have boarded the ship. In the stateroom, Bond and Tiffany are making out. She's about to ask him a question about them, but they're interrupted by room service. The attendants are Kidd and Wint. Wint says that it's, his, it's compliments from Mr. Willard White and tells him what they're serving. He adds that, what is it? It's Le Bon Surprise as we see Kid place a fake cake over a bomb. Why do these two want Bond dead? Are they just that thorough and wanna catch all of their marks? Are they pissed that they gotta look for work again? They gotta get in the unemployment line because Bond killed their their, um, payroll? It's, yeah, (laughs) it could be personal vengeance for all we know. Uh, Bond with a bottle of wine as Kid prepares the food. Bond smells the cork and says it's rather potent, not the cork. Your aftershave, he says to Wint. Wint and Kid look at each other worryingly. Bond then says the wine is excellent, but rather expected they be served a claret for a meal like this. Wint apologizes and says that the cellar is poorly stocked with clarets. Bond says, then says that this wine is a claret, adding that he smelled that aftershave before, and both times he smelled a rat. Kid grabs two kebabs and lights them on fire, coming after Bond. Wint grabs a chain from around his neck and tries to strangle Bond with it. Bond breaks the wine bottle and tosses the wine at Kid, who gets set on fire. Engulfed in flames, he runs and falls over the balcony. Wint, looking upset at his boyfriend instead, continues to try and strangle Bond. Tiffany grabs the cake and throws it at Wint, who ducks. The plaster cake shatters, revealing the bomb. Bond throws Wint over his shoulder, grabs the bomb, pulling Wint's arms between his legs. He then ties the bomb to Wint's hands and throws him overboard where he explodes before he even hits the water. He's suddenly left with his tail between his legs. Bond quips. He then asks what Tiffany was going to ask him again. She asks, How are they going to get those diamonds down again? They look up and they see a bright speck in the sky. Bond looks at her and smiles. So Diamonds Are Forever was released on December 14th, 1971 in Munich, West Germany, and on December 16th in Sydney and Melbourne, Australia. It actually didn't open in the US, Europe and other countries until December 17th the following day. Uh, It didn't even open in the UK until December 30th, so actually this marked the first time that the premiere didn't happen in uh, in, uh, England. So it opened in the U.S. at number one in the box office beating out the classic action thriller The French Connection which was holding that top spot for five straight weeks. Diamonds stayed at the number one spot for seven straight weeks before being toppled by The French Connection again who reclaimed the spot in its 18th week in theaters. In the U.K. Diamonds Are Forever was the second highest grossing film of 1971 being beaten only by the comedy On the Buses. Uh, the movie would actually go on to gross $116 million worldwide, with 43 million of that from being from the U.S. and Canada. Now, reviews for the film were mostly positive. Uh, I, myself, I give it three and a half stars. I think it's a very fun film. Uh, it's great to see Sean Connery back in the role. Uh, it is probably the, the funniest of the Bond films. Uh, you see there's a lot more humor injected into this one here. Uh, and uh, it's I, but I think overall, I think it's, I think I enjoy the plot and it's more of the supporting characters, uh, more than, than the main characters, you know, themselves. The plot, definitely for sure. I just, I like the plot, I like the, the elements of, um, you know, the, the pipeline of them going through the, um, uh, you know, the smuggling operation and K- when, uh, Wint and uh, kid, uh, you know, you know, bumping everyone off and, you know, and claiming, you know, and, you know, breaking every link in the pipeline and everything like that. So I thought that was, uh, very unique. Um, I liked, I do like, uh, this type, this Blofeld here. Uh, I think Gray does a really, great job he really brings a different perspective of blofeld to it he's he's far more this is a far more lighthearted blofeld uh than you've seen in previous incarnations i mean if you look at him in the beginning starting with from russia with love and uh, thunderball he's very dark he's just like you know you know you do one thing wrong you're dead sort of thing you, you cross him you're gone sort of thing he he's it seems like he's aged and kind of lightened up by this point where he still wants world domination but he's not quite so evil um it actually it actually plays out pretty well when you when you really think about it you know maybe it's saved him some money his his techniques probably don't cost as much as having to send shuttles up and you know, rockets into space and all this uh, elaborate uh you know underground you know hidden facilities and whatnot so it, it works, I feel it works um, my favorite, Jimmy Dean is probably my favorite supporting character of all the Bond films it's just, uh, he's he brings a lot of uh, humor to it uh, and, and it works out really well, he does a great job with that um, my biggest gripes are with a lot of some of the uh, you know a the, the little bit of the plot holes that are involved that I mentioned during my discussion of it of the of the plot, um, and my biggest gripe is Jill Saint John. Um, not so much the actress herself; she's a fine actress. Uh, it's how her character is portrayed. She starts off as headstrong and uh, you know independent. Um, you know she goes toe to toe with Bond, and she doesn't put up with any of his you know crap, and you know she doesn't fall for any of his you know cheesy lines and charms and all that. But she completely changes and like loses all that towards the end of the film by the end of the film she's just turned into this big goof it's just like you know she's just become like the the comic relief almost you know and they just like they ran out of things to do with her ever since she served her purpose but they had wanted to keep her in the movie because she's the bond woman the, the lead bond woman and you know but they, they couldn't figure out what to do with her and that, that kind of always kind of drove me nuts Uh, So, as far as the other critics, uh, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times did give the film a favorable review, stating that the plot is irrelevant and that there are moments of silliness citing the scene where Bond drives a moon buggy. He also praised the Las Vegas car chase scene, particularly a segment where the Mustang goes on two wheels. Uh, And I will have to add that there, yeah, that Vegas car chase scene is very well shot uh, and the stunts are expertly uh, executed. It's uh, very exciting chasing, even if you do get that, you know, with that uh, two-wheel stunt. Even if it is, you know, you get that scene where they they kind of swing to the other side. So, uh, but it's still overall, that was pretty great. Uh, Vincent Canby of the New York Times was enthusiastically positive, calling it great absurd fun. Uh, Jack Cox of Time Magazine states that Diamonds Are Forever is the best of the lot. It's by all odds the broadest, which is to say, wackiest, not sexiest. He further praised Connery as a fine, forceful actor with an undeniable presence who turns his well-publicized contempt for the Bond character into some wry moments of self-parody. He is capable of doing better things, but whether he likes it or not, he is the perfect, the only James Bond. Now Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune was more negative, writing that the film is not merely bad Bond, it is a bad movie disjointed script completes with, all of all things, a lack of action for responsibility for this failure. Women are unappealing even to Bond, judging from his lack of ardor, and the villains are hardly threatening. Uh, Peter Shadal of the New York Times, also had a positive view saying, it's a pretty good movie, not great art, but fantastic packaging. That's probably a perfect way to put it right there. Variety said that James Bond still packs a wallop, and all his cavortings still and still manages to surround himself with scantily clad sex bonds. Now let's take a look at the differences between the book and the film. Now in the book, the name Peter Frank is just a fake identity used by Bond to infiltrate the smuggling ring, given a backstory and everything. In the movie, he is a real person whom Bond impersonates and eventually winds up killing. Uh, in the book, the smuggling ring is operated by an American mob outfit, but is undisclosed in the movie. We don't know actually who's controlling the smuggling ring. It's just being interrupted by Blofeld. Uh, in the book, Bond follows the smuggling trail to New York City. Likewise, a gang member named Shady Tree tells him to collect his fee by betting on a rigged horse at the track in Saratoga. When the jockey operating the rigged horse is killed by assassins Wint and Kid, Bond is then instructed to go to Las Vegas. In the movie... Bond, is said, only tracks the smuggling operations to Las Vegas. Shady, while involved, is not a mobster in the movie, but a stand-up comic at the casino, and Bond collects his fee at a funeral home uh, rather than uh, uh, betting on a horse. So, uh, As mentioned in previous films, at this point in the book, Felix is retired from the CIA working for Pinkerton's in the novels. Uh, He's, of course, still active CIA in the movies. Uh, In the novel, Bond is captured and tortured at a ghost town called Specterville, but managed to escape with Tiffany on a railway pushcart. There is no such sequence in the film. In the novel, Tiffany is much more aggressive toward men and even hates them due to being gang-raped as a teenager. This dark backstory is, for obvious reasons, omitted from the film. Uh, Wint and Kid are also killed aboard a cruise ship much earlier on in the book. In the movie, they are the last bad guys to die. Um, also in the book, Blofeld is not present at all. This was an addition to carry over from the previous film, from uh, Honor, Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, instead, the primary villain is Jack Spang, head of the Spangled Mob, which goes, who goes under the alias ABC. Uh, Spang is actually a character in the movie, but he's more of a minor mobster he's the guy that uh that throws uh, uh, plenty of tool out the window and says i didn't know there was a pool down there so that does it for this episode of the smithflix experience don't forget you can reach out to me via email at smithflixpodcast at gmail.com. tell me what you think of the show uh, offer insights favorite parts things like that uh, and i'll read your email on the next episode. Uh, You can also feel free to check us out through Amazon Music or Audible, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. So that's it for today, but don't worry though, James Bond will return in Live and Let Die. Take care everyone. Diamonds are forever, forever, forever. Diamonds are forever. 啊 huh?